You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank Podcast. I'm Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow and the Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution and co-host of the podcast. I'm really excited about this episode because by now we have all heard about the term metaverse. First coined in 1992 in the book Snow Crash, a Neil Stevenson sci-fi novel that speaks of the dystopian digital reality where physical worlds exist through virtual experiences. Well, here we are today, where Facebook now calls itself Meta and has promised a place where augmented and virtual realities would coexist. In principle, this sounds amazing, almost like the Twilight Zone show that many of us watched growing up. Yeah, I'm old. Or let's try the movie The Matrix, for those of you who are a tad bit younger. But the Metaverse is now enabling retailers to provide immersive experiences prior to purchases. Medical professionals are engaging precise surgical techniques using augmented and virtual realities. Young people are using AR, VR to shape and visit places not yet discovered. And it's predicted that metaverse technologies will be valued at 800 billion by 2025 and perhaps 2.5 trillion by 2030. While these are promising valuations, one thing is still unknown. The extent to which the metaverse and extended use cases for AR, VR will be diverse and inclusive. And by that, I mean, how will this trillion-dollar market translate for diverse consumers who will also benefit? Will they be represented? Will their lived experiences be accounted for? Who will decide who can access these tools and what are the implications for racial, cultural, and experience biases? Friends, there may actually be social and economic costs in the use of AR, VR, alongside that excitement of technological innovation. But how do we encourage a new pipeline of creators that look at this world today as if they're on the inside? That's what we're discussing today. And I'm really excited because my guests know all about these technologies and have been working on their own version of AR VR for a variety of use cases. Today, please join me in welcoming Dr. Rashan Ray. He's a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and the Professor of Sociology and Executive Director of the Lab for Applied Social Science Research at the University of Maryland, and Dr. Kenneth Gaucher, who is the Executive Director and Chief Research Officer of the Morehouse Center for Broadening Participation in Computing. Thank you, Rashawn and Kenneth, for coming on. Thank you for having us. Now, Kenneth, I know that Morehouse's homecoming festivities just ended. It's my first homecoming in 12 years. Very exciting and a lot of people. Kenneth, I can only imagine. I'm going to start with you, Dr. Ray. You and I recently published a piece on ensuring equitable access to ARVR in higher education, which can be found on the Brookings website. Now, despite the economic value of these technologies that I just mentioned, historically Black colleges and universities, HBCUs, Hispanic-serving institutions, HSIs, and other schools like community colleges with high number of students of color are just not able to fully access and implement these technologies. Let's dig into this. And I think that's going to be based a lot on the blog that we co-authored with Samantha Lai. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. We brought together a team of experts, uh, primarily from 
uh, historically black colleges and universities, Hispanic serving institutions, tribal colleges, um, and even community colleges to have this conversation. And what we found is what we pretty much already knew, but the experts telling us the people that are in the trenches was really important to gain their perspectives. It's a few main reasons, few main barriers to entry. First is funding. When it comes to economics, that is a big thing. Funding and research infrastructure. When you are on a university's campus, not only is it about the endowment, but it's also about the research funding that's brought in and the research infrastructure that's set up, the space, the technology, the equipment, the people. That's lacking at a lot of historically black colleges and universities, partly because they have never been set up to necessarily have that. They were always behind the eight ball when it comes to having these resources. And instead of getting what they actually need, what we start seeing is that they have a lack of research collaboration as well with individuals that are at predominantly white institutions. The other part of it is that a lot of HBCUs, uh, as well as minority serving institutions, tend to be overloaded at liberal arts colleges. So you have professors that are overloaded with teaching courses, with the liberal arts curriculum, and oftentimes lack a graduate program or a series of graduate programs that are needed to sustain a research infrastructure. And in that regard, we're talking about PhD students. And then finally, I think we can also talk about student access and the digital divide, that a lot of students coming to these particular institutions might be coming from places that are underserved as well. And you put all of this together, they haven't necessarily had the ramp up to learn as much about technology, especially when it comes to thinking about AR, VR. So I like what you're talking about there, because I think this is a race. Everybody should have been at the start line. And because certain populations weren't, they're struggling to get to the finish. Dr. Gauthier, let me turn to you now. First, tell us about your new center. And then let's pick up on the question of why we have not had the evenness in this space. Sure, Nicole. Um, the new center is titled the Center for Broadening Participation in Computing. And we have some support at the $2 million, approximately $2 million range from the National Science Foundation, as well as some more support for some other companies. And we also have a strategic partnership with the IT Industry Council, which represents 80 of the largest tech companies in the nation. So we're super excited about having those partnerships, strategic partnerships in terms of actually getting stakeholders together and building a framework so that these interventions to broadening participation can be scaled. Right now, a lot of companies, a lot of organizations are doing things in a vacuum and a secret. And so what we want to do is to be able to say, hey, we all have mutual goals we want to achieve. Let's bring those things together. And that's one of the primary goals of the center that we want to address. Tell us more about why your mission is so important, Dr. Gosham. I mean, come on, Morehouse is a top line HBCU. So why is it so important to bring a center like the one that you've just established to the university? Well, Morehouse, and this is me saying from someone that did not graduate from Morehouse. Right. Morehouse is a very special place. And what Morehouse stands for is it stands for excellence and it stands for leadership. And when we engage different stakeholders, whether it be graduate programs, whether it be foundations, whether it be companies, that's the expectation that they look for. And so to house a center like this at a place like Morehouse 
is important because one of the biggest challenges that companies have, or two big challenges, one is that they need to make sure that the students have the technical skills in order to get hired from at their companies. And so I can say that Morehouse won't allow me to do something like this if we're not if the quality is not at the highest, right? And every school has a different demographic that they're focused on and a different bar that they aim to, but the Morehouse bar is high and that's that's a non-negotiable. Yes, yes. The other part of this is about leadership development. And a big piece of this broadening participation issue is that you not only need people coming into entry-level roles, but you need people that can grow their career and get into higher level positions and making sure that students have that leadership and character development as early as possible is another piece of this that's unique to Morehouse College. It makes it a good fit. You know, I love this because at the end of the day, this complements what Rayshawn shared. We need a talent pipeline, but also it's not just around the technology itself, right? There's a certain culture that comes with the imagination of technological innovation in some instances, or many instances, actually, students of color just not exposed. Right, Dr. Ray? Most definitely. I mean, look, a lot of what we're talking about is exposure. It's also access to resources. So when we talk about the digital divide, it's not only about whether or not a person has access to broadband. It's whether or not a person has access to the present and also access to thinking about a future. And that's part of what has happened with the metaverse. There are people who I know who had virtual reality when they were 13 years old, and now we're going back nearly 20 years. A lot of people are just now hearing about it. They don't even have access to it. So you could take two kids that live down the street from one another, but because of the way that segregation is operated, the way that resources have operated, economic resources in neighborhoods and in cities, they have complete different access to these resources, which then translates over into what happens in college, what they're exposed to, the ideas they come up with. And I think what people have to realize is there is essentially a nest egg to be hatched, if you will, particularly for underserved communities where there are so many resources, there's so much innovation in terms of the type of social and cultural capital that they're coming up with, that they simply need access to those resources to be able to actually bring these sort of things to fruition. And so when it comes to HBCUs, the sort of things that Dr. Gaucher is doing, him and his colleagues, is simply phenomenal because we need to model that across the country because they're not only thinking about what's happening on campus at Morehouse or in the AUC, but they're also thinking about the greater Atlanta area to ensure that children who are down the street at an underserved community can now have access to what's happening on Morehouse's campus. Kenneth. With regards to how broad the message and reach should be, say more here. Most definitely. Just to piggyback on Dr. Ray's response, when you think about the metaverse in particular, it's an immersive environment. And most people don't think about, obviously, things like the internet stuff comes up, and that's really important. I don't want to take away from that. And we've actually saw this when we did online learning during COVID is that a lot of students don't have an environment, a physical environment to engage in that they can fully be immersive. If you have a young person and they have three, four siblings in the same bedroom as them, how immersed in this digital space can they be? 
when people are doing all these things and, and do they have a quiet place that they can really dig into this environment that things like that are really critical to think about as well. Babysit your younger brother or sister, right? I mean, right. you know, all those things come into play. You know, I consider myself to be the digital divide diva. It's a huge portion of my studies, guys. Now, you both have me thinking, though, about spatial concerns, people's socioeconomic statuses that can affect their ability to purchase and own a headset that engages these technologies. I want to return to this portion of the conversation a little later, but it makes me think about what I said in the beginning about the commercial use cases of AR and VR like commerce. But Dr. Ray, you have been using it for other innovative use cases. I mean, the work that you're doing at the University of Maryland, you've been using the technology in policing. Tell us a little bit more about your project and the use of AR, VR, and how that divergent path is helping us explore more inclusive and representative use cases of the technologies. So about six or seven years ago, we created a virtual reality training program for law enforcement. We started off doing a lot of work on implicit bias trainings, realized that those were important, but extremely limited and extremely balkanized. We wanted to do something to be able to evaluate uh, behavior and also develop a training tool that law enforcement could use. So we collaborated with computer scientists and engineers here at the University of Maryland and developed a virtual reality training program for law enforcement that fully immerses them into virtual worlds. And through that, they can interact in settings that they would on a normal basis, a suspicious person that they encounter at an apartment complex or in a suburban area, and then also encounter different people across race, gender, language, and even traffic stops in different ways. So we developed that program and started working with law enforcement around the country. We then had the opportunity a number of years ago to start working with Jigsaw, which is a subsidiary of Google, and they were working on some similar endeavors. We were able to collaborate and create just a, an amazing program that allows officers to not only be fully immersed, but to also have the virtual reality characters respond to them in real time. Since that time, this particular partnership has been expanded to include Morehouse and Kenneth's crew, uh, as well as the University of Cincinnati and Georgetown University. And for us at the University of Maryland at the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, to date, we've had hundreds of police officers go through the training program. And part of what we have discovered, our findings highlight the role of what we call in sociology, social context, the way that place and space matter in different ways to elicit different outcomes. So we have officers go into different scenes, whether that be a suspicious person, a traffic stop, a domestic scene at a house, a robbery at a convenience store. And we vary the person that officers come into contact with. And we found on one hand, what a lot of people might realize is obvious. And that's the fact that black men in particular were significantly less likely to be treated respectfully. They were more likely to be treated aggressively that's not surprising to people, I think, at this point. I think when we first started doing this work a number of years ago, we still had to push that point and highlight it to people. Now I think people get that. The added component, though, that we found is how much social context matters. Context in this regard being place and also being the role that a virtual reality character is in. So when police officers realize that a person is a victim, they are much more likely to treat them equitably. When they are unsure, or when they perceive that a person is a potential criminal, 
that is when we really start to see the racial differences happen. So out from that, we continue to work with police departments. We also have a series of trainings, even developed a professional master's program for public safety leadership and management that you, Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, actually uh, teaching this in this program. And so it's a wraparound service where we're using VR and AR to really expose officers to what they do in the streets to try to keep them safe and to also give them training tools to get better. But what's interesting is that we wouldn't have been able to think about this use case, Rashawn, had that not been a lived experience or diversity of the producer of the case and the technology, like you, right? I mean, tell me if I'm wrong about that. No, I mean, look, you're exactly right. I mean, it's not just about uh, what's being served on the menu. It's also about who's sitting at the table and who has the ability to help create that menu, who has the ability to actually cook what is being served up. And for a very long period of time, equity has been put on the back burner, which means inclusion and diversity has also been put on the back burner. So part of us being at the table helps us to broker conversations and say, look, the research literature shows that there are differences by race. You can't simply have virtual reality characters that are only white. That doesn't tell us a whole lot. That doesn't help us. We also need to look at gender. We need to look at place. So we are complicating what is happening because that's real life. And the only way that people can actually get better, in this case, law enforcement get better, is to actually show them what is actually happening, the way that they're actually engaging with people in public. So who's sitting at that table is critical. And I know that tech companies historically have not done a good job over the past couple of decades of doing that. And many of them have been put on the hot seat to move forward to try to figure this out. Dr. Gauthier, do you necessarily have to be an engineer, a scientist to sit at that table? I mean, the argument that I often make is that you can be a sociologist, a philosopher, someone who has an interest in tech without the tech credentials. How do we make these welcoming spaces, particularly in AR and VR, so that students are not intimidated about this new level of technology? Some of us didn't go beyond basic computer science in college. That would be me. (laughs) So I want to hear more on how we actually make these open and welcome spaces. So I think when you think about building the metaverse out, there's so many tools out there now that you don't have to be a computer science graduate in order to be a part of the development and the building of what the metaverse is and what the metaverse would be. But I think that to make sure that these spaces are welcoming and lack bias, I think that you have to be either a part of the development Or it's, I feel like, valuable to know that people that look like you, that represent you, are a part of the development. And and I want to be clear, not just because so many people just assume that representation is about physical looks. I would say more about lived experiences and people that actually have walked in those same shoes, have, have seen those same obstacles and have a certain way of life and quality of life, I think making sure that those people are at the table when systems are built, before the systems are built, and after the systems are built is important. And as far as to, I think it's really important also to make sure that for those that do go in that more technical side, we got to make sure that the framework for those getting those tech skills is in order. And what I mean by that specifically is there's so many right now, and you all know this, there's so many 
saviors, right? That say, hey, I'm going to do this thing in tech and I want to diversify tech and I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do that thing. But what happens is that we expose students at different points of their childhood to technology, to STEM, to computing, but we never think about the to- the whole picture. So we'll get, we get these kids excited and there's nowhere for them to go next. And so we really have to think about what that looks like, right? If I engage a student in the fifth grade, what are they going to do to sixth grade? What are they going to do to seventh grade? What do they do to eighth grade? That's one of the things that my center is going to, to target, uh, especially in the state of Georgia. But I think that's something that universally everyone should be thinking about when they think about the technical training piece and making sure that folks of color have access to it. Yeah, but it makes me think of technology and how it's defined. I mean, most likely we are just attributes of the innovation, right? Guys, we're not direct producers. Young people, college students, graduate students, they can't envision themselves in this wave of technology because they don't have the resources. They don't have the headset, the hand device. They don't definitely don't have the broadband. I mean, for both of you, how do we make this more inclusive, particularly when people have these barriers? Well, I mean, we know that that the cost of the equipment is coming down. And of course, we've talked about issues with the digital divide, access to broadband. But taking that for what it is, if people were asking me where some investment should be with their children, I would say, go buy them a pair of virtual reality goggles um, or ask someone to do so for a holiday or birthday. I think the next thing then is get the kids in there and start allowing them to create content. The great thing about the metaverse as it stands right now is in some ways it's like the wild, wild west. There's so much happening there that people can go in and start creating content, learning how to do these things. And I think for a lot of for a lot of youth, it's quite more intuitive than, say, individuals who are older, where we might have had to learn through different channels. And so part of this is encouraging the development of that. I think also similar to what Kenneth is doing in Morehouse with his partners and collaborators, we need people from the tech industry and from the private industry to invest in what is happening in local communities. And part of that investment is not just thinking about dealing with broadband, which is a large part of it because that's the start of it, but then not just stopping there, but saying, look, if you're purchasing a series of tablets, then let's go ahead and purchase a series of goggles for people to start using as well. And the point is not to just go in and be users, it's to be content creators. And I think that will start getting people on the forefront. I think the other thing that happens is that companies need to all of a sudden get on board in terms of funding and ensuring that there's a research infrastructure for people in these communities that we know in the years to come are going to be some of the primary consumers of these particular products. So we need to ensure that they have the space to also be the creators and take advantage of some of that revenue stream that you talked about at the beginning of the show. I think two things that I also want to add on top of that, and Dr. Ray, I think raised some good points, but I think the programmatic support of not just saying, hey, here's the technology, but also saying we want to make sure that you have someone that is able to teach you how to use the technology, someone who's able to help you troubleshoot and answer your questions and help you work through issues and challenges and bugs and setup. That programmatic support, I think, is valuable. And ideally, how can you get that programmatic support build that program out and align it with academics. 
what I see a lot of, especially from tech companies now, is they'll have a, a genuine passion about working with underserved groups and they'll come up with, let's say, a curriculum for them to use or a tool or a product. But what happens is they're expecting students to engage with these things outside of their primary academics. And I think with under-resourced groups and, and more impoverished groups, that's just not possible. My students have to pass their classes at Morehouse. There, there is no other priority for them. And so if you don't incorporate it or find a way to incorporate it in the academics, it will always be secondary and never maximize to its full potential. And so I think making sure that we find a way to do it, rather it be through independent study courses or elective courses. We're doing this as a part of my center, but I think that kind of takes this type of instruction to that next level to not only say, hey, here's something, we want you to play around with it and do some stuff with it, but really aligning it with strategic and clear learning objectives and making sure that students can get credit for that work, whether it's at the college or the high school level, to me is the holy grail. Oh, I see that. I mean, I'm thinking of a business student who could use AR VR for a case study in product design or a pre-med student at Morehouse Kinnis using AR VR to show the impact of certain medications. I mean, I love what you both are saying because I think it takes the technology out of the equation and it makes it into something that's in a state of production for students. You know, I'm also thinking about parents, though, guys. I mean, what role do the parents play in all this? I mean, there are a lot of parents, including myself, that don't want to travel into this metaverse just because we don't understand it. At some point, will people be able to opt out of the technology or will everything just basically migrate into the space? So I'd love to hear from you, Dr. Ray, first and then Dr. Gauchette. In the future, yes. I think for some of us, even though the three of us are firmly embedded in the tech space, I mean, a lot of people our age or older might just age out of it, right? It's similar to other forms of technology. But I mean, the, the question that you raise is so important for a couple of reasons, particularly when we think generationally and when we think about public and private spaces. So there are a few things that I worry about. The first is centered around what's considered public and what's considered private. I'm also worried about space mapping, that in the metaverse, there's a lot of space mapping that happens similar to what is happening with people's security cameras like Ring or ADT or these other companies, Vivid, that are capturing the outside of their home when law enforcement wants access to it if it's been a crime, then typically that's going to be within their right to do so. We have to start having a, a more specific conversation about space mapping within the home and how law enforcement might actually be able to use that information and that technology to spy and pry on people and to gain access from people that they didn't otherwise want. So I'm worried about the space mapping. I mean, I really view it similar to how law enforcement has been using geofencing over the years when people are at protest and they cast a, a technological net over their cell phone service and they're able to capture who's there and who's not. They're starting to do a similar thing in the VR space. If people are attending protest, um, in the VR space, they're starting to capture who's there. So these sort of things are, are problematic. A few other quick things. The first, when you talk about parents, 
a lot of spaces in the VR space, they're trying to say they're 18 and older spaces. There are kids in there all day long. It's like Roblox on steroids right now in there. So we need companies to be upfront that they have individuals who are under 18 and they and that they need to address that issue. I think as parents and as a parent of a 10 and a 12 year old, what I always think about is not just having the screen sharing option to be able to look at what they're seeing in the VR when I'm beside them. But we need a screen sharing option that allows parents or a guardian to look and see what's happening in VR, even when they're not in, in the proximity of the person that has the goggles on. I think these sort of things will be a good idea. Also, parents and guardians getting regular updates to what's happening in the VR space, snapshots, short videos to see what's happening in there, to see what their kids are being exposed to. And then I think finally, look, we just need government intervention around security and privacy. Nicole, as you know, I mean, look, government oversight on this issue is just lacking and it's dated. I mean, it's not keeping up with how fast the technology is going. And I think collectively, these are big issues that, of course, I think in 10 years, if not sooner, a lot of companies will be having meetings in VR. I mean, that that is what's going to happen. But we also need some government intervention to ensure what's happening to protect people's identities. The last thing I'll say on this front is we need the equipment to actually have notifications. So we need the devices to have notifications, some sort of sensor, a light, something that's blinking to let people know that it's recording, even in public space, in terms of what's going on. But it'll probably be hard to stop some of that because, look, people can record with their phones already in public space. And it's not a whole lot that people can do about it when you're in a public when you're in a public environment. What I also want to add into this as well is that in this metaverse, we're also being pushed into environments where there are other people, they call that bystanders, that may be part of the immersive experience, but do inappropriate things. I heard this researcher, I forget where he was from, who talked about things like inappropriate touching and groping happening on the metaverse, but not happening in spaces where we know it's exclusively prohibited. I'd like to hear from both of you, you know, how do we close some of these gaps? I mean, I think that also contributes to parents not going online, these generational gaps. How do we take away some of these fears from parents and possibly students themselves? Dr. Gauthier, what do you think? One thing to keep in mind, and I think this kind of gets lost when people talk about the metaverse, is that it's not just about the headset. It's really something broader called extended reality. And the metaverse is this tapestry, if you will, of what you do on social media and on the computer anyway that overlays and some kind of weaves its way into this virtual space that we're kind of already in already, but not fully in, right? And so if you really think about it, if you're posting on social media, on Facebook, or you're liking things on Pinterest, you're already on the way. You're, you know, the, the headset is just one piece of it, but it's really deeper and more involved and engaged than just the headset. So I want to make sure that that's clear, because uh, I think that you know folks need to know they're not starting from scratch. Um, in terms of directly training them, uh, there have been studies and research related to training for payers that will include parents and their children together. And so I do think there's an opportunity to have training. And I do love the idea of having training for families around the metaverse and ways that they can explore the metaverse and take advantage of the metaverse in a safe way. 
Yeah. You know, Rayshawn, you liken these issues to some of these spatial concerns using the technology. And I think we have to figure out how to make these innovations more welcoming to communities of color. And at the same time, educate the private sector that this is not a one-time investment. This is long-term, right? Look, we're getting close to wrapping this conversation up. I wish I could keep you both longer. You know how I am. I like to talk. But Kenneth, are we going in the right direction or is there other stuff that we need to do right now? So I think in terms of next steps, my advice would be to make sure that a sample of stakeholders can be identified and representation from that sample can be selected to be in some type of advisory or steering committee. And this way, that group of individuals, of stakeholders can be made aware of different opportunities, new tools, changes to tools, changes to systems. And there can be a continued discussion. Sometimes there's a discussion and that's it. You need someone or you need a group of people and stakeholders that are abreast of the community, things in the community, and the changes in the community, as well as the technologists who have the technology and the changes in the technology. And there has to be consistent and constant, or better yet, regular meetings between them so that things can be discussed, opinions can be heard, and solutions can be identified to ensure that people are safe, people are included, and people are able to take advantage of what this metaverse has to offer. Rayshawn, you have the last word. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it goes back to who's sitting at the table, who's cooking the food and who's picking the groceries and instead of just being served up to be eaten by others. And I think when we talk about technology, when we talk about new creations, we know the legacy of not just the United States, but other countries around the world and the role that they play in that process. So what we need from tech companies are not just them saying that they're going to get better with equity, but actually showing it. And that's investing money into the equity space to not just think about who's working at their space, so who's actually creating the content for them, but also where they're investing. So we need to be looking and thinking about funding commitments now, but also visions for the future and how they're crafted. And what we need these companies to do is the same way that they sort of map out who they think their user and consumer base is going to be. We then need them to prioritize those marginalized communities in the process moving forward to ensure that they are included moving forward. So what they might look like, they might look like companies continuing to invest in local communities, actually doing wholesale renovations of spaces, but then also setting up tech spaces so that people could come in and do programs. It also means having their employees, their engineers, their computer scientists, and other scholars to actually go to these places and do teach-ins and actually create uh, internship programs that get students from one place to the next. And then it also means investing in that pipeline, continuing up the higher ed stream, which is investing in HBCUs and Hispanic serving institutions where we know these students are more likely to go. So overall, it's addressing the entire pipeline. And I think that is what can actually be done to ensure that we create a more equitable and available ARVR. You know, I want to thank you both for this conversation. It is clear that the use of ARVR is more than the technology the hardware and the handsets. You know, it's about these spaces and people and sustainable pipelines. 
It's also about us making sure that this metaverse and the immersive experiences of ARVR look like the people who are actually using it as well. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what to say, but you both, thank you. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. I also want to thank you for having us as well. Friends, this has been another episode of Tech Tank, where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bites. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, co-host and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. Thank you.